Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. Auspicious interbeing to you and yours, my friends, Coenos Hermes, and a deep bow to Sophia. In our last contemplation, we considered the central issues of the fifth error of embodiment. That's what this series is about, five errors of embodiment, how to transcend them. And that fifth error, the central issue, has to do with our need for vision and holism. As part of what we considered, we were thinking through the holism of our context of embodiment. We can only embody within a particular context. And our context includes our political and economic philosophies, including the abstract notions we have, the weird practices we have that we put under the label of democracy and capitalism. Among other things, we talked about soap and we critiqued the development and sale of antibacterial soap. And synchronistically, after recording that episode, my aunt, out of nowhere, sent me a video. She's a little new to Instagram. She gets excited sometimes, but I don't know why she sent me this video. I didn't mention any of this to her. There's no discussion about this series. That episode wasn't released yet. As I'm speaking, I still haven't released it. You might have heard it, but I, didn't, I don't think I released it yet. Definitely it wasn't out when she sent me this video. And she sends this video with an, a pharmacist advising people not to use antibacterial soaps. And the pharmacist was saying that it's no more effective than regular soap. And so the whole thing kind of gave me a laugh. I thought maybe I, it meant I should mention it again, especially for anybody who's jumping in here. It's okay to jump in here. But if you missed that contemplation, you might want to go back and listen. Maybe I should also point out again that I am a fan of soap and a fan of basic hygiene. But we saw in that contemplation that capitalism produces dirty soap. That's one of the beauties of capitalism. It produces dirty soap. Just like it produces degraded connection and communication. And in general, capitalism has a significant negative impact on our embodiment, on our relationality. And all of that relates to holism because capitalism, again, forms part of the context of our embodiment. And most of the philosophies around us remain stuck in fragmentation. And at the conclusion of the last contemplation, we mentioned that our need for wholeness has revealed itself clearly in many ways. And one of them relates to trauma. So we have a need for wholeness. We exist in a fragmented and fragmenting cultural context. And we see lots of symptoms of that. One of the, the sort of big sets of symptoms we can put under this heading of trauma. And that puts us in dangerous wisdom territory because talking about trauma can itself provoke anxiety and confusion. And we're, we're trying not to go to extremes here and find our, our middle way somewhere. We cannot possibly consider everything important in relation to trauma, but we're going to try to think together about the spread of so-called trauma-informed or trauma-sensitive mindfulness in particular. as a kind of one example. 
And that's relevant for a philosopher in particular because mindfulness is an example of fragmentation. The dominant culture grabs something from a holistic context, something meant to relate us intimately to holism, something related intimately to embodiment, and we fragment it. And then we get problems and we wonder why. And a lot of the people talking about mindfulness don't have, including people talking about trauma-informed and trauma-sensitive mindfulness, don't have a whole lot of training in the wisdom traditions. Some of them do, many of them don't. The dominant culture knows how to create trauma. Both the concept of trauma and the intense negative experiences we refer to as traumatic. And it behooves us to recognize that first and foremost. And this in turn means we need to recognize that we may carry intense, negatively valenced, unmetabolized experience. We may carry intense, negatively valenced, unmetabolized experience. And it might be our own experience. It might also be the experience of others. And that's what trauma, that's one way to understand what trauma is. Because of the pervasiveness of trauma and the general context of the patterns of insanity that characterize the dominant culture, we've begun to realize that trauma creates rather pervasive challenges for us. And as a response, as a, as a you could say, a, a caring response, we start to develop so-called trauma-informed practices, including spiritual practices. Now, one of the difficulties is that certain people, or just some of these conversations that we listen to them, get the sense that certain people in the dominant culture seem to relate to this idea of trauma-informed as if the dominant culture had brought something new to the practice of mindfulness as if there had been this 2,600-year tradition of philosophical practice, holistic philosophical practice, that didn't understand how to work with trauma. But, but now we do. And I'm referring here to scientists who research meditation, instructors who teach meditation, therapists who integrate meditation into their therapy and more. And this is a very nuanced situation, but a certain aspect of our response is manifested as an attempt to correct the wisdom traditions as if they lacked something. And let's say, let's differentiate this between an evolution of a philosophical system, because wisdom is not something that remains fixed. It has to be alive and, and fresh and rejuvenated all the time. That's a little different than the character of what we see in some of these conversations. The idea of a trauma-informed spiritual practice suggests that the spiritual traditions need to be informed by a new problem and by our somehow advanced understanding. We need to add something extra that the tradition lacks. In the case of meditation, we decide that we need trauma-informed meditation or mindfulness practice. 
Now, we could have had a very different response. One alternative response might have gone like this. Wait a second. Something is going on here. And maybe we don't understand meditation. Maybe we don't understand our own mind and body and context. Maybe we should slow down and study these traditions with more care. Maybe we don't know what we're doing. Now, if we put that another way, if trauma-sensitive mindfulness means something like being sensitive to the person experiencing trauma as they learn mindfulness, then maybe we could consider the possibility that something else belongs prior to that. Rather than saying we have to change the practice, maybe we need something ahead of time. We could instead say that trauma-sensitive mindfulness means being sensitive to how much we don't understand about mindfulness and the wisdom traditions in general, or even being sensitive to how much we don't understand life. That's a very different meaning of trauma-informed. We're letting our trauma tell us something about ourselves rather than saying that the trauma is telling us something about the tradition or the practice of mindfulness or meditation. Trauma-informed mindfulness means we, we shape or inform mindfulness when rather we maybe need to reflect a little more deeply and broadly. We can develop this notion into the suggestion that in place of trauma-informed mindfulness, we need mindfulness-informed trauma. That's not to say we need more trauma. It's to say, okay, if you think you are carrying trauma, let's inform that with mindfulness. And how would we do that? Well, clearly not the ways we've been trying to do it. This, the problem is not with the mindfulness. It's the problem with how we tried to inform our trauma many Cases involve people not realizing it was there. But switching things around like this says we need a more skillful and holistic practice of mindfulness, which doesn't necessarily mean informing the practice on the basis of trauma, but more skillfully informing our trauma on the basis of a much more holistic practice of life, a holistic philosophy of life. Because let's be clear about this, trauma-informed psychotherapy is not necessarily a holistic philosophy of life. Not only not necessarily, but usually not. It's usually not really a holistic philosophy of life, but generally a medicalization of experience, and often just another symptom of our fragmented and fragmenting culture. Now, we have, there are a lot of nuance there, because I don't want to make this some harsh criticism of the way we do therapy in the dominant culture, but it's just about trying to get a little more clarity. We need wisdom, love, and beauty as the proper medicine for our suffering, not just information about trauma or sensitivity to the fact that our culture produces trauma so reliably, as important as that is to recognize. And this relates to a rather central issue. 
If anywhere from 60 to 90% of people in the U.S. have experienced or will experience trauma in their lifetime, and some estimates put it that high, that 60 to 90% of the people in the U.S. have already experienced or will experience trauma in their lifetime, if that is accurate, then we need some serious rethinking about our whole way of life. Especially since so much of our so-called spiritual life can remain disconnected from systemic causes of suffering. Such a disconnection goes precisely against the holism of the wisdom traditions, and that's part of what we need to address. Until we face the larger issues, trauma-informed anything can more easily become co-opted into the pattern of insanity precisely because it allows the pattern to keep going just with sensitivity to the trauma it creates. We become more aware that we're creating trauma, but we keep the pattern that creates trauma going. That's how we solve a lot of, that's how we attempt and will always fail to solve so many problems. It's like the way we try to buy our karmic debt as we engage with capitalism. We keep the pattern going and we just try to add some ideology on top of it. When spiritual practice reveals widespread trauma, our reaction so far seems to be that we must change the spiritual practice. Now, if that meant that we must become more holistic in our approach, in other words, that we must change the way we, in particular, are practicing, well, that might make for a good suggestion. In other words, if it got us to go back to the wisdom traditions and say, well, wait a second, do we really understand these practices? Maybe that's what we have to change. But that's not how things unfold in practice. In practice, we keep doing what we're doing, but we try to become sensitive to the fact that many people are doing it under the influence of what we refer to as trauma, And then we try to alter the, the spiritual practice in the other direction, right? You see? It's as if we encounter all this very real suffering and say, wow, these practices are so powerful that they revealed all this suffering. Well, this is valuable. It tells us we should probably change our culture. Of course, we're not going to do that. Now, that sounds pretty daunting. So let's change these ancient practices. Let's call this suffering trauma. Let's adapt the practices to that trauma. And let's, in the process, adapt the practices to all our suspicion about education in general and about hierarchy in general. So it's like saying we'll water down the already fragmented practice and make changes to it rather than think more deeply about how we should change and how we should respond based on what the practices have revealed. Very nuanced. These are, these are nuanced things because a lot of people defending a trauma-informed or trauma-sensitive approach would say, no, that's what we're trying to do. But it's just about looking with as much care and as much 
commitment to ending self-deception as we can because everything can become you could say a, a victim of spiritual materialism. And we're trying to see the ways in which we can turn our trauma into spiritual materialism and turn our spiritual practice into spiritual materialism rather than real, really healing. So the different response might be like this. These practices are uncovering a lot of suffering. Maybe we need to stop producing so much suffering. How did we make this level of suffering? How can we stop doing that? Do we just not understand how to live well and how to live well together? We don't seem to know our own minds. Maybe we need to slow down, gather together, start some big conversations about what has gone wrong. Maybe we need other practices. Maybe we need to stop what we're calling mindfulness or meditation. Maybe we need more education from teachers with a lot of experience. And in general, maybe we we need more dialogue. We have to come together and look at the larger context. And we might even need to be prepared to face a lot of pain. That's a challenging aspect of all this. Because the ego would love it if our healing journey didn't hurt at all. And it might. That doesn't mean we indulge gratuitous suffering. It doesn't mean we indulge our ignorance. It, It means that really refusing to indulge our ignorance can become very uncomfortable. And so part of a larger shift would involve seeing that our ignorance about our own ignorance comes before anything else. And though we seem to have a genuine need right now to become more sensitive to the forms of suffering we refer to as trauma, we have an even deeper need to become more sensitive to wisdom, love, and beauty because this will empower our sensitivity for all beings, whether traumatized or not, And it will allow us and the world to heal and become revitalized together. We can start making the world we share in ways that reduce the amount of suffering in it. And we have to recognize that trauma-informed everything is going to get co-opted into the pattern of insanity so that we can keep the trauma-creating aspects of the pattern of insanity going. I know we don't want to do that, but that's the issue. It's that, that we don't know how to intend, and these larger systems produce unintended negative outcomes. And we can instead take much more care about focusing on how to get past a need for trauma-informed everything by cultivating a better world. And I have to say it almost like a mantra. This is a nuanced situation for a variety of reasons, especially in relation to philosophical traditions that can help us become more sensitive to the medicine of wisdom, love, and beauty. For one thing, a venerable tradition that operates across time and culture will naturally evolve and adapt. And as we recognized before, wisdom always has an aliveness, a freshness that makes it responsive to present conditions. 
And together with that, we can admit dominant culture science has not been totally devoid of insight. The tra- tra- these traditions can learn from the insights. It's a question of how a wisdom tradition evolves as opposed to how we come along and change, try to change it to adapt to our ignorance. That's a backwards way of evolving. And we contemporary people may have more to learn from these traditions than we realize, and we may accidentally miss some of that if we don't simultaneously respond to the needs of the suffering around us while also recognizing our broader and deeper ignorance. A 2,600-year-old set of traditions that has included scores of spiritual prodigies, geniuses, spiritual geniuses, philosophical geniuses at the level of an Einstein, Da Vinci, Mozart, or Tesla, that set of traditions contains incredible insight, incredible knowledge. And we should seek a deeper understanding of it before we go about trying to correct it. That means the first prescription for us is to slow down and study more approach our life more holistically and not try to move too quickly. For instance, one of the more significant figures in the trauma-informed approach to mindfulness is a fellow who wrote a book on the subject. His name is David Trelevin. In the introduction to his book, he tells us that he took up meditation because he was suffering from what we would now call empathy distress, or at least I think that's, that's how it strikes me. He was working as a therapist serving people who spoke to him about very intense experiences of suffering. And naturally, he got burned out. That's what happens with empathy distress. The proper medicine for such a situation is not an abstract idea called meditation. When we find ourselves burned out like that, Mindfulness, meditation, that is not the medicine. In a situation like that, just like any other situation of suffering, we need a holistic path, which means a lot of learning about the mind, working with our values, and so on. We especially need training in compassion, not mindfulness or meditation in some abstract sense. True spiritual practice requires a revolution But sadly, we don't always have access to the holistic teachings we need in order to make a healthy start at a revolution, a real revolution in the soul. We may not even realize how much we have to learn. How could we? In a state of ignorance, how do you know what the scope of that ignorance is? We might not have any real clarity about how much our culture has both failed to educate us and has even miseducated us we may not realize how much of a revolution our soul demands. And a symptom of that demand is the discomfort, our suffering. And it seems evident, from what I can gather, it could be wrong, but it seems evident that Mr. Trelevin didn't have the necessary support for this kind of revolution because 
Again, I, I think it would have meant a lot more education before he got too far into meditation. And sometimes even I'm surprised how, how, how slowly a person might have to proceed. If we were to start with any sort of meditation at all as beginners, compassion meditation seems the best choice. And even compassion meditation can require a slower pace than we might at first guess. And unfortunately, Mr. Trelevin seems to have jumped into the practice of mindfulness, which in the dominant culture tends to involve a lot of abstraction, fragmentation, that strips away the wholeness of a tradition, and thus limits our own sense of our own wholeness. And, in a way, unsurprisingly, meditation seemed to help at first. That's very important to recognize because it's an essential aspect of our situation. But at some point, Mr. Trelevin went on a silent retreat. And that sounds like a distinctly bad idea, especially given that he began with burnout from empathy distress and does not seem to have had a sufficiently holistic introduction to love wisdom. And sadly, but not completely Shockingly, he returned from the retreat in far worse shape than when he started, and the trauma that bothered him was the trauma of his clients, not his own personal trauma. That says a lot, and it's a very strong warning that we how important it is to approach these practices with tremendous humility. We may think we are fine, but emotional contagion alone can create suffering for us. And this speaks to the importance of compassion training for all of us. I mean, we can imagine if somebody, somebody through emotional contagion had a, a significant negative reaction on a meditation or mindfulness retreat, imagine what could happen if the trauma were firsthand. And maybe we should just recognize how what this says in general, that maybe maybe it w- wouldn't have been any worse if for the people, if his clients went through the same process, maybe they would have rated their experience the same as his. Shows how sensitive we are. It shows how much we don't understand the mind. Now, Trelevin says he still believes in mindfulness and meditation, but he realizes we need more care, and that is a good thing. However, our attempts to move forward with more care can fail to clarify our deeper need for holism, our deeper need for education, not information about trauma, but a broader holistic education. And so therefore we can actually perpetuate certain kinds of confusion and suffering. Now a well-known meditation researcher wrote a preface to Mr. Trelevin's book. Her name is Willoughby Britton. In her preface, she talks about her research on negative experiences with meditation, and she opens by mentioning her presentation of some of this research to the Dalai Lama, a very well-known Buddhist prodigy, philosophical or spiritual prodigy, and practitioner. She spoke to the Dalai Lama about people 
who have encountered such a level of challenge in their meditation practice that they couldn't hold down their job for a month or longer. That's the minimum in her in the population she studied, at least a month of interruption to their life so intense that they couldn't hold their job down. And in fact, the average disruption in the lives of her research participants is something like three years, which goes to show how serious these matters can be, how powerful these practices are. We think we're, we don't realize what we're playing with. And, and we should keep in mind, as I often say, that Buddha said, I'm, I'm giving you poison here. Now, if you handle it skillfully, then it's medicine. And we treat it like, like he wasn't serious. We are so out of it sometimes. And Buddha said, handle these teachings the way you would handle a poisonous snake. And it doesn't sound like some of these people were handling their practice like they were handling a poisonous snake. And then we say, well, he wasn't kidding. It's very powerful stuff. We don't know how powerful the mind is, and we don't know what the mind is. Now, she admits that, I mean, she has to admit as a conscientious scientist, but she's telling us that the people she focused on practiced over a long period, and they went to at least some kind of fairly intense retreat, even a short one. And what I mean by that is, you know, it's one thing to go and have some time to yourself and do a little practice of compassion meditation and, and not think I'm going to meditate for eight hours a day or even six hours a day and maybe not even four hours a day. But I'm just going to do a little bit more than I do at home. But I'm not going to, I'm not going to be around the daily pressures. I'm going to go to a nice location, ideally where there are teachers and support, where I feel safe. Maybe I need to go with a friend in order to feel safe and just know they're there. We might each be in our own space, but I, I, have to, I know they're there so there's lots of ways we can set this up, but that's not the kind of thing we're talking about. We're talking about people who went on retreats, and generally these, these retreats involve formal meditation practice for many hours a day, and they're often not based in compassion practice. And so, unsurprisingly, many of the people that uh, Britain studied experienced problems as a result of going on retreat in particular. Now, it can feel a little challenging to listen to Willoughby Britton talk about her work. We have to remain clear that people are experiencing real suffering here. And we kind of have this deluded notion that we can take up meditation in a fragmented way, or we don't realize that that's what we've done. We may think that we're being very holistic people, you know? Now, here we are embedded in a con context of fragmentation, and we think we understand holism. And we think we understand our own needs. But we don't always understand our own needs. Now, in our context, because of the history, this can actually sound offensive to some of us. We may say, I know what I need. Who are you to tell me I don't understand my own needs? It's my body, it's my mind, it's my life. Don't tell me what I need. Now, we can sense a level of incoherence in that reaction. On the one hand, we can indeed learn to get in touch with a deeper knowing and arrive at insight into our true nature. 
And moreover, in some sense, all healing is ultimately endogenous. And that means we are healing ourselves. Now, at the same time, we simply do not know everything. And the spiritual problem of ignorance means we actively misknow. We actively misknow a great deal about ourselves, each other, and the world. If we truly, truly, truly knew what we needed, we'd already be healed and fully liberated. We wouldn't have any suffering whatsoever. We'd know how to heal everything. In other realms, we find these sorts of facts a lot easier to accept. Now, for instance, we often go to a medical doctor or other healer, priests, and this includes indigenous traditions. You know, this includes people with cultures that are more rooted in wisdom, love, and beauty. In a wide variety of contexts, it's quite normal to go to a healer of whatever variety precisely because we don't know what's wrong and we don't know how to heal. And we require both a proper diagnosis as well as a proper prescription for healing. Which, in most cases, if we trust the healer, we follow as directed. We may need that therapy tailored to our very specific constitution. We don't want a cookie cutter, but we go to that healer to find out what we think we don't know. We don't get our ego too ruffled up about it. And the health of the soul requires the same thing, a skillful and realistic diagnosis coupled with a skillful and realistic prescription. It seems so important to acknowledge that by definition we don't fully understand ourselves or we would already be fully liberated, fully wise, fully loving, compassionate, and graceful. We wouldn't need spiritual guidance. We'd never, humanity on the planet wouldn't have recognized spiritual geniuses, spiritual prodigies, shamanic or liminal figures. But that exists around the world. All, all cultures recognize this. And so when we reflect with some humility, we can accept that it's okay to get some guidance. Even Buddha, Socrates, Rumi, and other great spiritual geniuses had teachers, and they followed the instructions of those teachers. At the end of the day, we can always refuse to do what a teacher tells us, and we need to keep that firmly in mind. The power, so to speak, lies with the student. And that includes the power of humility, the power to decide, yes, I'm going to trust this teacher. Yes, I need to trust and I want to trust and I do trust this tradition and this teacher. So we must choose wisely. It all requires discernment and humility. And sometimes the teacher or the tradition may ask us to do things that feel uncomfortable. And we have to understand what that means and how to navigate it. It's like we want the road to be just easy. No challenges. Nothing for our ego to get over. Our ego is is going to feel good every step. Well, it usually doesn't work that way. And to assert that only I can know what I need in my life is to deny that I have any ignorance in me at all. And it also denies that I have an unconscious. 
It denies the whole meaning of knowledge and experience, the meaning of teachers, elders, spiritual geniuses and prodigies and trusted beings. I mean, in some tradition, it denies the meaning of the divine. To say someone has knowledge in the most proper sense means they have undergone experiences that changed them in ways that allowed them to arrive at insights. And someone with greater knowledge thus understands things that someone without those experiences and insights effectively does not understand. We may claim that somewhere deep within us the soul really does know, but that doesn't change the fact that we may be out of touch with that understanding and not capable of getting in touch with it in our current condition. We go to someone who knows because they have intimacy with what we have lost touch with, or they can see something we cannot yet see. Just like someone can see the back of our head. We can't see our own back. Now maybe if we get a mirror or we get a three-way mirror, sure, we can finagle it. But there are always parts of us that somebody can see that we can't see at any given moment. Teachings in a cultural tradition reflect the presence of the experience and insight of those who have gone before us. Teachers have an obligation to pass on that experience and insight in the best case because they have verified those teachings as far as possible for themselves. They ran the experiment. Sometimes, when we listen to people talk about difficult experiences coming out of their meditation practice, we can start to think the fault lies in the teachings, in the practices. While no teaching is perfect, it seems essential to recognize that the more important fault for many of us today may lie in the fragmented context in which we find ourselves. That context drives us to fragment a holistic ecology of teachings that could otherwise have spared us the very suffering we then blame on the fragment. Meditation as some isolated practice only exists in our misguided imagination. Historically, In real living context, it always exists in a holistic context and no serious practitioner in such a context takes up meditation as an isolated thing. Now, they could be confused. It's not to say every practitioner is wise enough to see this. But that's not how the traditions teach it. The traditions teach that we have to learn a great deal before we can engage in practices that could bring up challenging experiences. And those traditions have a vast array of additional teachings and practices to help us deal with those challenging experiences. They also have real living communities. They've got that vitality of really good teachers, really excellent teachings, really excellent friends. We need preparation that both helps avoid certain pitfalls while also giving us everything we need to face the challenges that do arise. This is certainly part of the message of a trauma-sensitive or trauma-informed approach, and we are just emphasizing certain aspects of this that don't always get quite enough attention and care. 
From this broader perspective, we may understand that, in an important sense, nothing Willoughby Britton talks about is entirely new to these traditions. The new thing, the strange thing, is that conquest consciousness has created such a level of suffering that people infected with it have psychophysical breakdowns if they practice too much meditation. That's what's a little bit new. It's not that these traditions have never seen anybody have these problems. It's just the scale. Related to this, we can say that people infected with conquest consciousness not only don't realize the full nature of their infection, but that as part of this infection, they may think they can do whatever they want. In other words, we perhaps unconsciously seek to conquer the problem of meditation or liberation. And our philosophical or spiritual life thereby becomes another manifestation of conquest consciousness itself. That's some subtle spiritual materialism. I can do whatever I want in my spiritual life. And that's not really the way the spiritual teachings go. And I can do whatever I want in some cases means I can go to the retreat, even though maybe I'm I'm not ready for it. And it also means, well, I I don't want to have a hard practice, so I'm going to say I want to change the practice because it, it needs to be changed. Not I need to change, the practice needs to be changed. Now, if you watch Willoughby Britton's presentation to the Dalai Lama online, I'll try to put a link in the transcript, Maybe if I, or, or if I remember, I can put a link in the show notes. You can also easily find it. I, well, you might, I don't know if she's given multiple presentations to him. But if you, if you watch it, you will see the Dalai Lama sits there quite unfazed by her report. If, if, when I've, I've watched it a couple of times, and I always think, I wonder if she's puzzled by the fact that he's not really reactive. Because you can tell she's, she's sincere, and I'm not trying to poke any fun at her. And again, this, there is real suffering here. But he looks completely unsurprised that this sort of thing might happen in the dominant culture. And he diagnoses the situation in the same way that we have here, and that is a lack of holism. Now, she admits to him that we in the dominant culture have decontextualized and medicalized practices from his tradition or his the set of traditions to which he belongs. Naturally, she doesn't know how to proceed, in part because the simplest answer involves going against that decontextualization and medicalization. Do you see the challenge there? It were, the simplest way to proceed is a revolution, and that sounds too daunting. But it may nevertheless be the most realistic thing for us to acknowledge. It's such a simple solution. Okay, you're noticing a whole lot of problems, and you're telling me you don't know how to proceed. Well, the answer is, stop the fragmentation and the decontextualization and the medicalization. And so we see this other meaning for trauma-sensitive mindfulness or trauma-informed mindfulness, Trauma-sensitive mindfulness means we have discovered a deep need for cultural transformation, a need to heal self and world, nature and culture at the same time. Now, we've already implied this in various ways, but we're just bringing it out. 
In the meantime, and maybe also as part of moving toward that cultural transformation, we might need some basic suggestions. And at Willoughby Britain's request, because she's saying, look, I, I don't know, how, how would you proceed? What do you suggest? She asks him, and the Dalai Lama offers several suggestions. Even these basic suggestions might not sound so good to us. Now, I want to say that one of the first things, when he's sitting there, he's very unfazed. One of the first things he asks is, who told these people to meditate so much? It's a, it's a very interesting question. It's like the, the initial question, I think, that he asks, if I remember correctly, is, who told these people to meditate so much? But in, in giving more kind of filled out recommendations, the first thing he says is that we need to arrive at a deeper, more holistic understanding. And he says that people in the dominant culture often think they understand far more than they actually do. And I have seen this countless times, including in clients I have worked with and students I have taught in the university system and outside the university. I have seen many spiritual teachers and even university professors struggle with an arrogance that might not seem at all like arrogance to the people who manifest it. They might think of themselves as, as quite humble. And maybe even in some cases we can think of it less as outright arrogance and more as ignorance coupled with limited experience. And that can really throw us off. We've tried to bring this up in many contemplations. It's a very big issue. It's a big issue across this culture in the way people work with psychedelics, in the way people engage in therapy in general, in the, in the whole self-help catastrophe, the whole self-help industrial complex. Lots of people who don't realize how ignorant they are and their experience of life doesn't reveal it or they don't let it reveal it. Now, sometimes this ignorance masks itself as independence of thought. You know, I think, I'm going to think for myself. We don't realize that that is simply a function of ignorance. Sometimes it comes across as self-confidence. Sometimes it comes across as reclaiming our power from some maybe alleged patriarchal authority or whatever it might be. And I'm not saying there isn't ignorance in the culture, but what I'm saying is this is how spiritual materialism works and this is how the immune system of the pattern of insanity works. On the surface and consciously and sincerely, we are saying, I am reclaiming my power. What actually is happening is that we are following our ignorance. And, and in this context, we can actually forget that just because a biological male studied and practiced for decades in a venerable ancient tradition and then offered teachings, that doesn't make those teachings fundamentally patriarchal or oppressive. Even if they got co-opted into patriarchal structures or present hierarchical instructions, I mean, hierarchy is an, actually a good thing if it's authentic. Co-opting is something we all have to take care to avoid. And as for hierarchy itself, the term literary, literally means, literary, literally means a sacred ordering. Now, the dominant culture carries itself forward on the basis of false hierarchies rooted in ignorance rather than vitalizing hierarchies rooted in the sacred. But that does not mean no sacred orderings exist. 
such as the sacred ordering, that certain meditation practices should come only after a solid foundation has been established through education. In our confusion, we may dismiss a sacred ordering the same way we dismiss a hierarchy rooted in ignorance. That's important. Just because false hierarchies exist doesn't mean no authentic ones do. Our subtle arrogance or ignorance also appears in our insistence on what we think we know. We in the dominant culture may hear some good teachings or we may read a popular book. We may then think we understand more than we actually do, finding it cogent and thinking we can help ourselves. We think we have. And naturally we get excited. We go off to meditate, not realizing how unprepared we are, not realizing how much more we need to learn and not realizing the depth of our own ignorance and suffering. And then we might push very hard. Maybe push to meditate, not realizing that meditation means cultivating or making something real, and therefore not realizing that we may thereby make some of our ignorance more seemingly real, rather than making wisdom, love, and beauty real. Now think about that. Meditation falls under this idea of bhavana, which is cultivation or making real. The question is always, what are you going to make real? We're always making the world. We're always making something. We're always practicing something. We're practicing the world into being. And the question is, what are we going to practice? What will we make real? Generally, we make varieties of ignorance real. The wisdom traditions try to interrupt that. But if we don't realize that when we sit down, this is the the crucial place of learning, that when we sit down to meditate, we're going to make something more real. Will it be reality? Or will it be some of the forms of our own ignorance? That's the real danger in meditation. If it's going to make something more real, will that be wisdom, love, and beauty? Or will it be some variation of our own ignorance? And that's why the Dalai Lama advised Willoughby Britain that we need deep, critical study, specifically reading books and learning from teachers who really know what they're doing. We need refuge and support in a healthy community of practice with spiritual friends and teachers of significant accomplishment. Just being in the presence of an advanced practitioner can teach us a great deal because many teachings get transmitted from body to body, so to speak. That's another aspect of embodiment. The embodiment of a true teacher teaches us. And we bring tremendous benefit into our own life and into the world when we receive such teachings. But we also need study. We bring tremendous benefit into our own life and into the world when we study true spiritual geniuses. Not just people who tell us things we like hearing and not just the fine teachers we meet in this life or the very wonderful authors of popular books. We need books that are over our heads, the books that really make us stretch and maybe that require teachers to help us understand. We benefit from entering as deeply as we can into the teachings of the greatest adepts the world has ever produced. 
And this too has to do with honesty and humility. Most of us wouldn't compare ourselves to Einstein, Da Vinci, Mozart, or Tesla. And yet we may behave as if we have no need to read the teachings of Buddha, Dogen, Plato, Rumi, Meister Eckhart, who is not, is not the same person as Eckhart Tolle. If you have a choice between somebody named Eckhart, choose Meister Eckhart, much more profound spiritual genius. The greatest spiritual geniuses not only arrived at exceptional levels of insight, but they belonged to traditions of practice that elaborated and furthered their teachings to create vast treasure troves of wisdom, love, and beauty. We have so many shallow teachings in the dominant culture, especially under the guise of self-proclaimed non-dual approaches. We have to put that in quotes because non-dual is like a synonym for enlightenment is easy, and you can have it right now without any effort. That's kind of what non-dual means. Americans in particular seem to love this, even as they may insist that they are fine with effort. That's not easy to understand. On the one hand, people may claim that they are willing to put in a lot of effort in relation to the body and the soul. In terms of our embodiment, we can put in all manner of effort. We can put effort into yoga, qigong, weight training, ultramarathons, somatic practices, all kinds of things. We may go all the way to India, live with a spiritual master, and have all sorts of big experiences and witness various miracles. These things may lead us to assume that we know more than we in fact know. It's a weird thing. Consciously or unconsciously, we may have the attitude that we've seen it all. Yeah, yeah, I know I know all that already. We love to say that we know. Yeah, I know all this. But if we knew it, we'd be done. We'd be free. And Willoughby Britton, in fact, specifically mentions that some of the people in her research interpreted their experiences as evidence of profound enlightenment. Now that's, I don't know how profound they thought, But to say, evidence of profound enlightenment, it seems clear these people are not the second coming of Buddha or Christ. Or if they are, I hope they start teaching. I hope they can liberate us all. Maybe they are. But it doesn't seem that way. And these traditions are much larger than these individuals. And they so far are not getting recognized, and they're not producing enlightened experiences and peace and love and wisdom. And in general, the ego really loves to put out precisely the kind of effort we're talking about, traveling to faraway places, spending time with a teacher onto whom the ego has projected perfection, perhaps even pushing intensely with various body practices and meditations. And the weird thing is it does a lot of this as a way to avoid the things it wants to avoid. And that's very challenging to discuss because we don't consciously want to avoid the work of a spiritual or philosophical life. Well, some people do, of course. They'll just admit it then. But when we pursue the spiritual life, where you consciously we want to heal and flourish. But if the ego can turn the effort into a vacation or an adrenaline rush, if the ego can manipulate the effort into avoidance, and if the effort can become a badge of honor the ego gets to wear, that's all part of how it steers the process. And that can sound harsh. Ironically, of course, it sounds harsh to our ego. It's not meant 
in a mean way. It has to do with acknowledging both the power of the unconscious and the restrictions imposed by the larger culture. We're just trying to attain some honesty about the challenges of spiritual materialism, the limits of our own understanding, and the potential extent of our ignorance. If someone tells us we need to sit around reading books for hours, that we need to think critically, studying with teachers who instruct us to do more than just sit quietly and do nothing, we may start to resist. It may seem an odd suggestion. To get more richly embodied, we might have to carefully study a challenging book. That's a weird suggestion. And it's a nuanced thing because it involves no insistence that only by means of books can we realize ourselves. That's ridiculous. The issue is that in our context, in our context, the right kinds of books studied in the right kinds of ways, often with the right kinds of teachers, might help us tremendously. And we should take great care lest we dismiss them too readily. Now, I say this as someone with a significant level of ambivalence when it comes to books. Well, believe me, I'm ambivalent. But I do recognize their importance in our current context and in relation to many traditions, including traditions outside the dominant culture. Every tradition passes down knowledge and books can support that process. It is not a white thing. The Indo-Tibetan tradition values texts. The Sino-Japanese tradition values texts. Now, of course, we should acknowledge that those are conquest cultures, just like the dominant culture. But even the wisdom streams in those cultures have taken up the book as a way to help. So we can turn it to the good. And for some of us, boy, it's, it's essential. When it comes to reading as a way to become more skillfully embodied, we do find that temperament plays no small role. Some people would love to do nothing more than read books. That's it. The thought of meditating in a cave would make them... I don't know. Make them tense, to say the least. For some of those people, sitting in a cave would become just another form of delusion. And it could lead, for them, it could lead to a lot of suffering. So they might be better off studying the books. If they really put their mind to it the right way, if it's a mere accumulation of information, it's not going to really help. But if they try their best to live those books, they will live an ethical life, and they may arrive at more wisdom than people who rush off to the cave without sufficient preparation. The books have to get into our embodiment in order to become real. We have to run the experiment to see if truth can be embodied, to see if reality can be inhabited. And this can happen if we work in as holistic a way as possible. It's not going to be completely meditation-free. They're not going to be able to avoid any kind of meditation. Just reading starts to train the attention. Adding in some compassion practice. It's a holism that can come no matter what we focus on or emphasize. And again, we've got to remember, I want to say this again, the Dalai Lama's first question to one of the people is, who told these people to meditate so much? 
And so the same thing could be said, well, who told these people to read that many books? Are they getting any guidance? Do they know how to put it to practice? Do they know how to live it and make it real? These are very important questions. Yet another nuance emerges in all of this if a tradition tells us that enlightenment requires many lifetimes and that we need to begin with a preliminary set of practices or a set of preliminary practices, maybe that's a better way to put it, and those preliminaries might include reciting a particular mantra. And maybe we have to recite that mantra a hundred thousand times. Maybe we have to also do or separately do a hundred thousand prostrations. And we, in the dominant culture, might receive that suggestion as rather depressing. It may tempt us to give in to laziness or even to give up altogether or find somebody else who says we don't have to do that. So we, we've got the tradition telling you, okay, you're going to need 100,000 repetitions of this mantra, 100,000 prostrations. And the ego says, oh, but there's this guy on YouTube who says none of that's necessary. That's all a delusion. Alternatively, we may receive that suggestion as some imagined patriarchal oppression. And that can be just part of it, part of stamping our foot and resolving to become enlightened by next spring. A part of us may not want to hear that we have to slow way, way down and broaden our vision so much that we have to think and study with great passion because the whole world depends on it. That's a lot of burden. The whole world depends on our practice. Oh boy, are you sure the YouTube guy isn't right? We may think of 100,000 prostrations and 100,000 recitations as some oppressive demand of patriarchy and not something essential. How could that be? Even though it's a whole radical reprogramming of our embodiment. Here we are in this question, this context of embodiment. We're asking what it means. Think of how that alters your embodiment. We want to change our minds. We don't understand that sometimes we have to just start changing. Going through 100,000 prostrations and 100,000 recitations done holistically again, not mindlessly, that creates shifts we can't even imagine. We don't understand embodiment when we dismiss these practices the way we do. And whether or not we've done 100,000 prostrations and recitations, we may get rather attached to our spiritual experiences and once again fall into thinking we know more than we do. In the dominant culture, we have known about some of these challenges, at least going back to Carl Jung, kind of like this idea of looking at it psychologically, you know, through the lens of Western psychology. So that's not new. That's not the contemporary psychologist. Jung warned us about this years ago. I've written about this before in relationship to psychedelics, too. More recently, maybe starting in the 70s or 80s, we had a little bit more understanding, too. In a broader sense, though, Mystics in the Greek and the various Christian traditions have indicated the potential challenges of spiritual practice. They have made, they've made it pretty clear for us in the, in the streams of the dominant culture, so it goes back far. We can trace those threads back for over 2,000 years in the dominant culture. But we do have in mind here specific issues or some specific issues related to our contemporary context. And Jung does give us a good perspective there because he was a, quite a genius himself. 
And Jung wrote that he didn't think people from the dominant culture should engage in philosophical training of the kind we see in various traditions outside the dominant culture. That's really interesting. Here's a guy saying, no, this is not for Western people. I kind of, sometimes I'm amazed at, at, at the fact that he said this, because some of those traditions would agree in a certain way. Although they, they would say, no, but we, we do have the same basic mind, but I think they would agree with what, what his full diagnosis was. Now here's some of what Jung wrote about this. He wrote, great as the value of Zen Buddhism, this is, he's writing an intro, I think, to D.T. Suzuki's, uh, one of his collections of essays. And so he's thinking about Zen Buddhism in particular, but that's, it's not restricted to that. But anyway, he writes, great as the value of Zen Buddhism is for understanding the religious transformation process, its use among Western people is very problematical. The mental education necessary for Zen is lacking in the West. Who among us would place such implicit trust in a superior master and his incomprehensible ways? This respect for the greater human personality is found only in the East. Could any of us boast that he believes in the possibility of a boundlessly paradoxical transformation of experience, to the extent, moreover, of sacrificing many years of his life to the wearisome pursuit of such a goal. Let a master set us a hard task, which requires more than mere parrot talk, and the European begins to have doubts. For the steep path of self-development is to him as mournful and gloomy as the path to hell. That's what Jung wrote. And it's really interesting commentary on our ego and our unconscious. And now, some of us consciously say, oh yeah, I'm not doing 100,000 prostrations and 100,000 recitations and all this other learning, reading all these books... Some people really take this seriously. You know, they will learn Tibetan, they'll study with teachers, they'll do these recitations and prostrations, and then the, they build up their capacity to meditate, and they do it in, a, in the right way. For a lot of us, this just sounds ridiculous. And even if it's not a conscious thing, consciously we may say, no, no, I will do anything. I am all about waking up, man. Look at how I've lived my life. This is what I do. But the ego is still saying, unconsciously then, in that case, that sounds like too much. And so our own evolution and our liberation look to some part of us at least. It, it appears to some part of us like the path to hell. It looks gloomy. It looks depressing. And that matters. Something in us wants the healing to be pain-free. We want a life free of pain. But healing transcending suffering, that process may itself involve a certain amount of pain and it may come with no cure. It's the difference between healing and cure. And all that pain may be needed to heal what transcends our ego. In other words, the larger web of life may need our pain, may need our sacrifice. Healing transcends the ego in the most decisive ways. 
Now, this is not a way of rationalizing people's trauma. I'm still saying that this is probably, in most of these cases, it's gratuitous suffering. In some cases, maybe it isn't. That's a very difficult thing to consider. But in general, the path of healing, even if we do it without gratuitous suffering, still may challenge us and still may feel pretty hard at times. Jung felt that part of the problem for us in the dominant culture had to do with the poor condition of the culture itself, which then creates human beings with an unhealthy relative self. You can't transcend a self that lacks the strength to undergo that transcendence. And we could say that all our trauma and our continued ecological degradation indicates things may have only gotten worse since his time. Jung spoke as both a person with a deep understanding of the dominant culture, in other words, someone who had studied many of the key spiritual streams or texts of the dominant culture, and he also spoke as a skilled therapist who had seen firsthand the state of the souls of many people infected with conquest consciousness. He basically diagnosed the typical person of the dominant culture as unready for what a tradition like Zen, for instance, as one example, might demand of them. Unready, and in some cases, maybe many cases, unwilling to do what the traditions prescribe. And if we reflect here on indigenous traditions too, and think about their relationship to suffering and healing, that also should add some humility, and it resonates in a lot of ways with what we're talking about. Now, we mentioned Jung as one stream here. We also mentioned the 1970s or 80s. It was about that time when Tibetan teachers started allowing some members of U.S. culture to go on meditation retreats. Now, some of those people ended up in psych wards, and the teachers thus accidentally confirmed what Jung had claimed. They kind of thought... Now, there was a lot of difficulty there, and um, that's a nuanced thing. But it really showed them too, I think, the need for holism and the need to recognize what they were facing when interacting with the dominant culture. I think a lot of those teachers realized that many of the psyches of the dominant culture needed a lot more help at a very basic level. And in fact, I suspect if you were to get the right group of psychologists, psychiatrists, mental people who work with healing the soul, together with the old school healers of souls, the the philosophers, If you get the right group of those philosophers and the right group of the contemporary psychologists together, I think they'd they'd have a lot of, of agreement and a lot of ways to support each other because it's the same basic work. It's just that the dominant culture has gotten so out of whack. And so it's not that the wisdom traditions aren't capable of supporting this. They might be surprised that things got so bad, but all the support is there. The question is, how do we collaborate so that the psychologists can operate more on a basis of wisdom, compassion, and grace, wisdom, love, and beauty, and how the people 
carrying the lineages forward from the wisdom traditions can understand just how bad things are. It almost seems that in some cases the response of these traditions has recast our spiritual path in a way that may feel uncomfortably modest and slow. That could be contributing to some of the problem. You know, people are rushing because it's just even it's uncomfortably slow. And that too can add to our thinking that we know more than we do. If someone gives us a very, very basic teaching or set of teachings or puts a somewhat sophisticated teaching in highly accessible language, we can mistakenly think we understand more than we do. Now, in all of this, I mean no disrespect to David Trelevin, Willoughby Britton, or anyone, 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 anyone who has experienced or wants to recognize and alleviate suffering of any kind, and certainly not specifically anything that we would put under the rubric of trauma. And all these people are doing important work to raise awareness, to ease pain. People offering trauma-sensitive and trauma-informed approaches want to help. And they draw from research and clinical experience that has developed in the dominant culture in relation to the elaboration of suffering peculiar to this culture. There are some, sure, unique features. We're all the same, though. The mind is the mind. The nature of mind is the same. Particular manifestations can vary. And a lot of this work offers genuine amelioration of suffering, even if it also involves some limitations and unintended negative consequences. And we may not even understand all the consequences. Now, our emphasis, as usual, is that the wisdom traditions have much more medicine to offer. And it seems important, not just worthwhile, important, essential, to study them further. Now, it's just one example. Mr. Trelevin recommends internal family systems therapy in his book as part of a trauma-informed approach to mindfulness or meditation. Now, that's interesting. He makes no mention of an ancient Tibetan practice that bears a strong resemblance to internal family systems therapy. Arguably, that practice, developed by a great female philosopher, a great spiritual sage, spiritual genius named Machiglabrun, her practice can do everything internal family systems therapy does while preserving the holism of the wisdom traditions. Now that's interesting. Here's a practice that can't, uh, it's already there. It can heal trauma. It's over a thousand years old. Well, it's about a thousand years old. But it predates any of our trauma research and it's holistic. And in that sense, it may offer much more for us. I'm not trying to dismiss internal family systems therapy. It's helped a lot of people, but it is not a holistic philosophy of life. And someone who might be very accomplished at practicing that form of therapy is not necessarily a sage. They're not necessarily wise. And I don't think that we should continue to try to heal without doing more work integrating holistic philosophies of life into our therapy, into our healing, into our lives in general. 
So that's a really important thing. I don't expect Mr. Trelevin to know about Machig Labrun's teachings, but we consider it here as an excellent example of fragmentation because we, we stole the meditation practices from her tradition. And when things go wrong then with the way we practice them, so we steal the practices, that we fragment them, we approach them in a fragmented way, then, oh, my goodness, unsurprisingly, things go wrong. And how do we try to correct it? Well, by adding more stuff from the fragmented culture without fully understanding that the problems arose in significant part because we abstracted from those traditions, leaving them fragmented in a way that leads to greater risk of problems in the first place. So we're moving from fragmentation and toward fragmentation. You see? But we need to move from and toward wholeness. We keep failing to do that. And as part of this, we also tend to leave out what the venerable wisdom traditions themselves have developed to aid our healing. So that's just part of the reason for considering her example. The Buddhist traditions in particular speak of 84,000 kinds of teachings. And we have left ourselves with a remarkably narrow range of them, including a narrow range of meditation practices and ways of meditating, ways of healing heart, mind, body, world, and cosmos. We might begin to hear the label trauma-informed or trauma-sensitive as a signifier of our ignorance. Maybe that's what some of these thinkers intend. I don't know if if that's what they intend. It just doesn't seem that way. The conversations, the discussions don't seem that that's what it means. Why add the moniker? Just say, look, all this suffering means we don't know, we don't understand. Trauma-informed mindfulness doesn't mean we have to add something extra that the traditions lack, but instead means we don't understand our own suffering. We don't understand our own context, our own culture, what it does to us. We don't understand this world that we're living in. We don't understand the holistic philosophical traditions well enough to proceed without greater care. So we've got to slow down. We have to slow down and ask ourselves, well, just how fragmented and confused might I have become? Not because I'm bad, inadequate, stupid, or unable to think for myself, but just because I've been influenced by a culture that knows how to produce fragmentation and suffering, suffering that we call trauma. I'm embedded in a culture that knows how to perpetuate ignorance, confusion, and spiritual materialism. So how fragmented and confused am I now? Just how much more might I need to learn from the wisdom traditions and from people trained in those traditions? Not because I'm incapable of learning on my own, or I'm somehow an inadequate being, but because I may not realize how much ignorance affects me and how much the teachings have become fragmented and abstract and because I want to take advantage of the vast learning that others have put so much passion and energy into accomplishing for themselves and passing down through the generations. Our interest in embodiment can awaken an interest in the wisdom traditions of the world, which can liberate our hearts, minds, bodies, and the world we share can liberate the whole cosmos. We're not alone in seeking a vitalizing experience of life. 
The wisdom traditions offer us a common ground of wisdom, love, and beauty that each and all of us can learn to embody. And that common ground arises as the non-duality of nature and culture. Culture has to do with passing on learning. It's the thinking of the world. It's part of the thinking of the world. And in human culture, it's not just human culture. Just let's make that clear, if that wasn't when I made that statement. When we're saying culture has to do with passing on learning, that is general. It transcends species. And when we pass on that learning, it spares us from repeating errors. It helps us attune with spiritual and ecological realities. And it gives us a boost in fulfilling our greatest potential. Indeed, it gives us inspiring visions of that potential, at at times far beyond what we might otherwise imagine for ourselves. And it keeps open an evolving horizon of insights that help us cultivate the whole of life onward. Learning in this sense is part of taking care of both our body and the whole world nature and culture in non-duality, which we can only most properly do on the basis of wholeness. Culture also designates the field of practice, especially when we see it in non-duality with nature. The dominant culture has trained us to work with our trauma as a personal problem. Not only does our culture help to constitute our trauma, but it also restricts the options for healing. And, and well-intentioned people can go in, can sort of feed into this. That's part of what, why we're thinking it through. We don't see that the options get restricted and that we collaborate in it, we participate in that, often under the guise of a very different conscious intent So what we proclaim as our intention is not necessarily what our action gives rise to. If we can create a cultural shift, we can begin to establish a culture rooted in wisdom, love, and beauty in harmony with spiritual and ecological realities. Now that means, for instance, from an early age, we could get instructions about the mind. We could learn how to train our minds, our heart, mind, body, and world and cosmos. We could learn practices of wisdom and wildness, practices of love and compassion, practices of beauty and grace that not only prevent trauma from happening, that's the real thing we want to do, that's important, but also heal more effectively when it does happen. That's a cultural shift. It's a different lifestyle and livelihood. I mean, when we talk about trauma, do we raise the questions about lifestyle and livelihood? Do we put capitalism in the analysis? And when we're not doing that, that's what the, the previous contemplation in part was suggesting. If we, if we won't challenge our current sense of what economics and politics are, what democracy and capitalism are, we're not really trying to solve our trauma. We're trying to make our trauma fit within the pattern of insanity. When we try to change the meditation practices and change the spiritual traditions rather than looking at ourselves and our culture 
We're trying to keep those practices going along with the pattern of insanity and not using them to dispel the pattern of insanity. This is a big shift. It's subtle. These are subtle things. They're nuanced. I know we're not in a context where nuance is welcome. But we're trying. See if we can see this. And part of the suffering, a major source, really, of our trauma and our suffering is the duality the culture teaches us how to practice and make real between nature and culture. And we could shift. We could, we could shift all of this. We could learn these practices of wisdom and wildness, love and compassion, beauty and grace, without the duality between nature and culture, such that nature would always be there to help us realize the profound resilience of our heart, mind, body, world, and cosmos, and to heal our suffering in mutuality, mutual liberation, mutual nourishment. Nature's there to help us, but it's mutuality. We have to recognize how we traumatize the natural world. A central point of these reflections about trauma has to do with trying to open our minds, hearts, bodies, and worlds to the wholeness we can find, both in nature and in the wisdom traditions. When I taught in the university, and well, still to this day when I teach people, when I work with clients, but I, I stood out for me a few times in the university, really saw a lot of students disconnected from nature. And, and as a university educator, I was very aware that ecological illiteracy is practically a foundation of the dominant culture. And that matters very much when you consider that I see spiritual and ecological reality in non-duality. So that means that spiritual literacy is also. Philosophical illiteracy is a foundation of the dominant culture, as is ecological illiteracy. And it was funny to see that it's the issue that we brought up a little bit earlier, to see students behave as if they thought themselves smarter than Plato, Buddha, or other great philosophers. I, I would sometimes be surprised. I would see it not just in undergraduate students, but graduate students. We can sometimes imagine that a philosopher like Buddha couldn't help us, couldn't possibly help us with our trauma or our daily life. And we think that way, largely because we don't know his teachings, or we don't know them very well. So funny, because I see people misquote philosophers all the time. Recently saw someone misquoting Aristotle, and it was just funny. And I once said to someone, I think it was a student, I don't remember, maybe it was at a, at a milonga, I said, if reading a philosopher doesn't improve your dancing, then either the philosopher wasn't very skilled or you didn't read them deeply enough. And the point is that wisdom traditions teach reality. They teach us how to realize exactly what we are. And no one should be told they cannot work with these traditions to find out what they are. And that's like we have to invent it. We have to figure it out. It's such, such a confused notion and such a waste of our lives to think that we can't turn to these traditions to help us heal that they don't know such incredible things about what we are that our psychologists and doctors don't know. 
But we do need clarity about the holism these traditions require because, after all, that's part of what we are. We are something whole. We are interwovenness and wholeness and holiness. We have to understand the extent of our fragmentation as a result of conquest consciousness. That we, we all suffer from this to some degree because most people on the planet are infected by it. Sure, there might be exceptions, but man, it's just like a virus. And maybe it's even like getting chicken pox and it kind of goes into hiding for a few years, you know. And then you don't realize when you, until you've got an outbreak of shingles that you were being affected by it. One beautiful example in the context of this consideration or contemplation of trauma is Sister uh, Dong Niem, who wrote a book called Flowers in the Dark, Reclaiming Your Power to Heal Trauma with Mindfulness. Now, I love that. <laughs> That's different. And she's known as Sister D in the Plum Village tradition. And Sister D has a medical degree from an American medical school. But she was born in Vietnam during the Tet Offensive. If you don't know what that is, if it sounds bad, it is. The Tet Offensive. There were bombs falling all around when this baby, this child that would become Sister D, was coming into the world. And she suffered intense abuse from a young age. Born in the midst of war, she lost her mother at age 12. Now, it does no good to compare wounds. That's a very important thing. But it is safe to say Sister D understands trauma as did her teachers, all of whom, the major teachers there, they all survived the war in Vietnam by means of the practice of mindfulness. And along with Sister D, you can read about that in Thich Nhat Hanh's books and also Sister True Emptiness's book. Uh, hers is Learning True Love. She really talks about being in the middle of that war zone and having nothing to rely on but the practice of mindfulness. Now, we would think it would be quite natural if, if Sister D's teachers all suffered from PTSD, but they didn't. Thich Nhat Hanh didn't have any signs of PTSD. Sister True Emptiness didn't. Now, Sister D did, because she didn't grow up being trained this way. And her book is not about how she had to add something extra to mindfulness, but how a holistic, and this is a very holistic tradition, how a holistic practice of mindfulness itself offers us the medicine we need to heal even intense trauma. It was intense for her. And we have to handle all of this with care. We have to take good care of our suffering and our world and ourselves and each other and our bodies and our minds. When we practice slowly, deeply, and creatively on the basis of wisdom and wildness, wisdom and wholeness and holiness, then mindfulness will begin to inform our trauma. That's a wonderful way forward. The trauma needs informing, reforming, releasing, metabolizing, and mindfulness can help if it's in the context of a holistic ecology, a living holistic philosophy of life, a love wisdom, which includes exceptional teachers, exceptional teachings, and a vitalizing community of real friends. Healing deep trauma, and in general healing ignorance, 
And realizing our true nature can take many years of consistent effort. And Sister D details a long struggle, deep study, and refuge in a healthy community and a venerable lineage of teachers and teachings. And healing deep trauma demands that we be as honest as we can about what we're experiencing and whether or not that experience has become overwhelming. And as a final note related to all this, we may want to recognize that our wisdom traditions may know how to access capabilities of heart, mind, body, world, and cosmos that we in the dominant culture, by and large, may not understand at all. And we we sort of mentioned this a moment ago, that these traditions and these spiritual geniuses know things that our doctors, our psychologists, our psychiatrists just don't know about the mind and the body and the world. Just like indigenous traditions. You know, this is, I mean, this is common ground here. So when I'm talking about this, I don't just mean conquest cultures that develop love wisdom as a way to heal conquest, like the Indo Tibetan tradition, Sino Japanese tradition, but indigenous traditions who have these same currents, these same roots and shoots growing. Now, the fruits might be different because the context is different, but they, it's common ground. And so that's why we know our indigenous brothers and sisters, they know things that we don't know. And these wisdom traditions know some of those same things. And we have to take care of wisdom wherever we find it and recognize kinship, recognize the common ground and the differences, the non-duality of unity and diversity. But in this general regard, I do recommend the book Meditation Saved My Life. I might have mentioned it in another contemplation, but it's by Pakya Brimpache. Meditation saved my life. And his example stands out because he had a clear diagnosis and prognosis from the dominant culture. And he did something that should be impossible based on what we know in medical science. It should have been impossible based on what we know about medical science, but it was possible based on meditation practice. Pakya Brimpeche was captured by the Chinese He was imprisoned and he was tortured. Now he managed to escape, amazingly enough, but in the process of the ordeal of capture, he injured his leg severely. Now in this case, this is just like Thich Nhat Hanh, when he came back to the dominant culture, he doesn't mention any symptoms of PTSD. And there is a distinction. You can find some of the literature on this, some of the people I've heard discuss their their research and some of the research I've seen indicates that your risk of trauma depends on your stage of practice. If something we would call traumatic happens to you and you're new to the practice, you are at risk, at greater risk. If you are more advanced, you are at much reduced risk of having symptoms of PTSD. So Thich Nhat Hanh didn't show those symptoms, Pakya Rinpoche didn't, but he did have this severe injury. Now because he had been a victim of, of the, the Chinese aggression and been a victim of torture, he was able to seek asym- asylum in the U.S. This was back when we took in refugees. And he, as part of that, he could get free medical care and the help of a translator to accomplish all this. Now, he was on the plane from Asia to the United States. He had sought refuge and been given, a, that's part of it, he was given a ticket to go to the U.S. And on that plane flight, 
his leg began to swell incredibly. And he, I think he describes it as like an elephant leg. I don't know how big it was, but he said it was really, really swollen. Then he got to New York and the tra- got connected with a translator and was taken to a reputable U.S. hospital. And he received a very clear, unconfused diagnosis. He had gangrene. This is not one of those, uh, maybe you see it, maybe you don't. He had gangrene, and that means he had to get an amputation. And at the time, given it, it was the injury was his ankle, but it had spread enough that he would have to have amputation uh, just below the knee. Now, initially, Pakya Rinpoche talks about how impressed he was with the hospital, the doctors. It all was very orderly, and you know, big. You know, it's kind of like an image of what we sometimes think of as patriarchy. This whole thing here it is, the big machine, and it's all clean and orderly, and people are wearing white coats and they know what they're talking about. And he just readily agreed. He said, all right, well, that's they, these people really know what they're doing. And part of what convinced him was not just that his leg had swollen so much, but he could smell the rotting flesh. And that's part of it. So they're telling him, hey, the limb is dying. And so it was, he could smell it. And so he's all set. He's going to have the surgery. And then he goes home. And for some reason, he starts having doubts. And for whatever reason, the doubts prompted him to ask the translator to come back to the hospital with him. And he said, you know, I want to just ask the doctor some questions. And he began asking the doctor questions. The doctor said, look, this is clear, cut and dry. You have gangrene. You have to have an amputation. That's it. He said, well, would it be possible to ask another doctor? And that doctor said, well, you can ask another doctor. This is not one of those things where you're going to get different opinions. It's gangrene. It's a very black and white situation. So he respectfully said, well, if it'd be okay with you, I'd still like to see somebody else. So, sure, yeah, go ahead. So Pakya Rinpoche went and saw another doctor. So now what's beautiful about this is there's a medical file that exists on this spiritual prodigy. He, uh, because it just the name Rinpoche indicates that this is a kind of spiritual prodigy. And there's two, a medical file from two different physicians giving a very clear, very straightforward diagnosis of gangrene. So he went to this other doctor. The doctor told him the same thing. And he re- reiterated something the first doctor had told him, that if you keep messing around, you're not going to just lose your leg below the knee. You're going to lose it above the knee. And if you think you can avoid having an amputation, you're going to end up dead. This is an unambiguous diagnosis. You amputate this limb now, or we're going to have to take more of it. And if you don't let us amputate at all, you're going to die. Now, Pakyab Rinpoche took this very seriously, but still something in him hesitated, and he realized, based on his particular spiritual training, that he felt that the energy flow was still there, such that his foot was not disconnected from the rest of his body energetically. Even though all this flesh is dying around it, he said, well, no, I I still sense my foot energetically. And if the energy pathways, this was, he had very specific training in healing techniques and in working with energy. So you can see the holism it's not just I'm going to treat it with mindfulness or wish. So this is very sophisticated because he was a very advanced, he was a spiritual prodigy recognized from a young age. 
So the hospital initially tried to support him, and he would watch them scooping out necrotic tissue from his leg, just scooping out his own dead leg. And they finally said, look, if you're, not gonna, if you're for sure not going to get the amputation, we can't continue to treat you. So he said, all right. And he went home, and he focused on meditation practice hours and hours each day. Two years later, he was walking around like nothing ever happened, not even so much as a limp. Now, that kind of embodiment practice really should give us pause. And I'm sure lots of us might say, oh, yeah, I totally, I believe it, I've seen it, I've done it myself. This is sophisticated stuff, and it can show our dismissiveness. It's one thing to experience spontaneous remission. It's one thing to toy with certain practices. But the story that we, the stories we have reflected on is that meditation is powerful, but it takes real training to tap into that power skillfully and to really begin to say that we know how it works. This was a prodigy trained from a young age in a holistic context, trained in a holistic philosophy. And so it's certainly far removed from yoga poses or workouts at the gym, but it's also removed from a lot of what I think we think we know. So this is training the mind and heart, training the imagination, and relating to embodiment with exceptional nuance, skill, and insight. And his story suggests, as the title conveys, that meditation, as part of a truly holistic practice of life that includes sophisticated teachings refined over centuries, has a vital role to play in the practice of embodiment and in the practices of healing ourselves and our world. If a person without the kind of training Prakashay had were to simply wish for their leg to heal, it might work, it might not. And he himself now, when he teaches people from the dominant culture, he won't teach somebody who has walked away from what the dominant culture has told them to do. So if you go to Prakashay with cancer, and you say, the doctors told me I have cancer, and uh, they say it's treatable, but I don't want to do it. I don't want chemo. I want to learn your teachings. He won't teach you. That's something to think about. Why, out of wisdom and compassion, would he say, no, I can't. You have to agree to what your culture says. It's a very nuanced question, actually. Let's have maybe a few concluding reflections. We want to move on to transcending all these errors. That's exciting. That's going to be fun. We'll talk about some nice things. But I think so far we, we could say realizing our fullest potential for embodiment and realizing our fullest potential beyond this current embodiment as we understand it involves moving from and toward wholeness. Healing ourselves and our world involves moving from and toward wholeness, something the dominant culture does not teach and at a cultural level, we have to say, does not understand, period. Even as we begin to talk about things like systems thinking, we tend to think about systems. Skillful embodiment involves becoming the wise, loving, creative, compassionate, beautiful, graceful thinking of complex systems no ego, no doer can control. And the wisdom traditions of the world can help us accomplish this. 
all of them, all the venerable traditions. The high priests of academia, and some and people influenced by them, speak of violence done to bodies rather than just violence. They speak of the oppression of bodies instead of just oppression. Speak of white bodies and brown bodies. As part of our suffering, we live abstractions instead of realities. And some of this kind of language can help to loosen us from some of our abstractions, releasing us into a fuller reality. But the loosening doesn't tend to last or accomplish as much as we might wish. The ego plays a mercurial game, and bodies, embodiment, coming into the body, it can all become new variations of abstraction and spiritual materialism. In our personal and professional life, we find a lot of embodiment training vying for our attention it seems wise to begin to apply more discernment, or else the self-help industrial complex will pull us further into the pattern of insanity rather than liberating us from it. Our suffering is real in, in, in its own relative sense. It's very real. We don't want to ignore it. But we may need to really slow down and open ourselves up to a lot more learning and the wisdom traditions are here to help. It's a treasure trove of healing potential, a treasure trove of human potential, a treasure trove of Gaian and cosmic potential. So let's turn toward it, and we can do it together. We can help each other. Now, as we said at future contemplation or series, we'll consider how we can transcend these errors of embodiment. Maybe that will come out after right after this, or maybe we'll just leave this one and release some other things, kind of take a break from embodiment for a little while. I know sometimes it's good to stay in a groove and think, so we tried to release the five errors together. But then sometimes we need a little break to let these things germinate a little bit. So maybe we'll do it that way. We'll see how it goes. So we have more interviews coming out, dialogues, I should say, and more dialogues to come. Some people that I'm excited to talk to, to engage in dialogue with, and some dialogues that have already been recorded that I'm really excited to share with you. Wonderful people. Mary Reynolds and, uh, let's see here, Jeff Kripal and uh, some others. So lots of good things to come. In the meantime, if you have any stories or reflections, questions to ask about embodiment, trauma, holistic practice, anything at all that's come up in any of the contemplations, that you've heard. Just send them in through dangerouswisdom.org. We might be able to bring some of them into a future contemplation. Sometimes I might just write you a little reply. You never know. But I'm always happy to hear from you. Look forward to that. Until next time, my friends, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world, the soul of the great cosmos, they're not two things. Take good care of them.